FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We're going to get right to it uh, today. I'm going to introduce our panel uh, pretty quickly uh, because our special guest for the show has just informed us he has an important call with the GBI in just a few minutes. So we want to talk to him and get as much as we can before then. So first of all, our panel, Greg Bluestein, AJC political reporter, is with us as he is every Wednesday. Amy Steigerwald, political science professor at uh, Georgia State University, joins us again today. We're glad to have her back with us. And Emily Jones, GPB Savannah, who's been following the Ahmaud Arbery case from down there, is also with us today. All of us will have an opportunity uh, now for the next just few minutes uh, to talk with Chris Stewart. Uh, Chris Stewart, the Atlanta attorney who is one of the team, a key member of the team that is working and representing the Arbery family as they try to sort out the uh, terrible shooting that took place down there near Brunswick. Um, Chris Stewart, welcome to the show. I- I'm going to start very quickly because I know you do have to get to this GBI call. Uh, I believe you uh, were quoted in uh, one uh, media uh, vehicle or, or another as saying that now that uh, we have a, a new DA, finally, a special uh, d- district attorney, Joyette Holmes, appointed out of um, uh, Cobb County, you're feeling a, a little better about the case. Is that correct? And what was wrong with the way things were handled leading up to her appointment? Uh, yeah, that is correct. I mean, there was just too much uh, apparent uh, corruption going on with how the case had been handled uh, with the prior DAs, uh, with the case being moved around. Um, you've seen the investigations that have opened. So it's just best to have a uh, unbiased eye on the case that has nothing to do with any connections down there um, looking at the case and prosecuting it. Emily, you want to jump in with a question? Sure. I mean, you know, now that the the two initial suspects have been arrested, one of the big um, the big questions and, and kind of rallying cries I keep hearing from folks is um, is they're asking about the uh, the gentleman who filmed the video. Have you heard anything from investigators? Do you have any sense of um, you know his involvement and and what they're looking at in that regard? I mean, the person that filmed it, he was involved in this. I mean, it's, it's, it's insane. Um, you know, he, he needs to be arrested. If you just read the police report, Mr. McMichael says Roddy tried to block him in. I mean, he was part of the chase and the pursuit of hunting uh, Ahmad. Uh, that is an accessory to a crime. Uh, if you just believe what Mr. McMichael said, and, you know, he even used the nickname Roddy which is his name. If they don't know each other, how do you know his nickname? Um, Greg, why don't you jump in? Yeah, I've got a question. So it, it appears Mr. Arbery was spotted several times in the, this home under construction on his jogging trail. And he's on some home security clips. Nothing was ever taken or damaged. Uh, what, what was he doing in the home? Was, is he just curious? Was he just kind of just um, wandering around, interested in, 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 in home under construction? Yeah, none of that in, until that's verified by the GBI or um, law enforcement uh, are we accepting. 
Um, can I ask a follow-up question quick, too? This is separate, but, you know, one thing we've seen a lot of, we know Mr. Arbery was a young man who liked to jog, but what, what else can you say about who he was, what, what he liked to do with his personality? I mean, if you just saw his uh, best friend's interview last night, which was emotional and moving, um, you know, you talked about you talked about the support and how he was somebody that his friends leaned on. Gotcha. Um, Chris, can you speak a little bit to there's been a lot said about the Georgia citizen arrest law. And so can you speak to sort of what that allows, but also what it doesn't allow? Right. What is it that if someone thinks they number one, what uh, causes it to kick in that someone can now act under the purview of this law? But also, what does it actually allow you to do and what does it not allow you to do? Uh, it does not allow you to do what happened in this situation. Um, you, you are not allowed to not have witnessed the crime, grab weapons, uh, see someone you think could be involved in a crime, chase them down and end up shooting them three times. Um, what it would allow you to do currently in Georgia is let's say you're in the grocery store and an armed robber walks in and points the gun at the uh, cashier and you're right there and they rob the place and turn around and you tackle them and hold them on the ground until the police come, saying that you're under arrest, citizen's arrest. That would be allowed. I mean, you're right there. It happened. You have clear, immediate knowledge of the crime. It's a clear felony, and you tackle them and hold them down. You don't use excessive force. Um, but it's, it's insanity for people to start uh, chasing individuals they think may have been involved in a crime with weapons. What if it's the wrong person? What if it's someone that looks like uh, who you thought did it and you end up killing them? I mean, it's going to turn into the wild, wild west if this is allowed. Yeah, the background of this law seems to have been aimed at people like grocers, people who are in small businesses who, if they spot a, a theft going on in the store, have the right to hold a suspect and call the police. Not, as uh, Chris points out, the, the law did not, I don't think, uh, contemplate that <clears throat> you would uh, end up uh, uh, being able, having the power to shoot a, uh, someone you had apprehended, especially in the midst of what was uh, at, at most misdemeanor trespassing. Emily? To return to the prosecutors for a second, um, you've you know expressed some optimism now that there's, there's a new prosecutor on the case, but um, what do you think needs to happen next, or are you calling for happening next with the, the previous prosecutors? Um, I mean, there's, there's these investigations into them now, into their conduct, and I've seen calls for their removal, calls for their uh, their being charged, possibly. What do you think is, is appropriate in this case? Well, it, it's evident Chris Carr is uh, upset, um, and he rightly is. Uh, he not only called for the federal investigation, but I saw that he's activated GBI to investigate them for any kind of prosecution misconduct. Um, it, it's mind-blowing some of the actions they've taken you know, as a lawyer or even for a layperson, is to not tell your attorney general you've already been working on this case and instructing police officers not to do an arrest and acting like you don't know anything about it, you're just getting appointed the case, shows uh, some, some serious issues, um, you know, and, and you know your son works for the DA that just had to give the case up 
because of uh, conflicts, because of who it was that was involved in the murder. Your son works there. You know you're going to be conflicted out. You know, you can't claim, oh, I don't know where my son works. He should have immediately answered that call and said, well, you know I can't take it. My son works for you. Of course he's worked with McMichaels, but that didn't happen. Chris, I know you've got to get to this call with GBI in a moment, but I do think it's important to ask you one last question. Uh, the There is a grand jury going to be impaneled here, but because of the uh, uh, pandemic, uh, there's going to be a delay in when that grand jury is convened. Uh, two questions about that. One, do you think under these extraordinary circumstances with the international attention focused on this case that Glenn County, uh, that the special prosecutor should in fact consider whether a grand jury can move forward under tightened security? Uh, and do you think the family wishes that could happen? Or as long as the McMichaels are in prison, uh, in jail, awaiting trial, is that good enough? Well, I think, you know, with the advances that we're making with the social distancing, um, you know, if it can be done safely, then, yeah, you know, it should, it should move forward. If it's something where people are sitting really far apart or um, with a you know, how it's getting worked out now. Um, that would be great. You know, the faster justice comes, you know, the better. Um, so if they can make it happen, that that would be great. All right. I know that we're losing you sooner than we had hoped. I hope you'll come back and do the show when you don't have to do these, you know, dealing with people like the GBI, Chris. Come on. Political hey, rewind is important for us. <laughs> you, guys, you guys know I'm always available. I know you are. Thank you for spending a few minutes with us right now, and we will uh, watch your work on this case proceed. Thank you, Chris. Okay. Um, Thank you. When Chris leaves us, let's let's continue to uh, talk about this case uh, for some time because we have some interesting new developments. And Emily, I'd I'd love to turn to you because you've been over in uh, Satilla Shores. You've been in the Brunswick area uh, watching this unfold. I mean, just as a sta- a scene setter. What are you finding is the mood over there about this case as it's unfolded? Uh, well, the mood was incredibly angry um, for most of last week, uh, as, as I think it was easy enough to see on social media, even if you weren't there. And then there was definitely a shift um, after the arrest happened. Uh, they were announced on Thursday evening last week. Um, and, you know, I, I spoke to one of Ahmaud Arbery's aunts right afterward, and she was like, she, she was overjoyed. She was, she was out of breath on the phone because she was so happy this news had come that these, these guys had been arrested. Um, and so there was definitely a shift in the mood um, going into to the enormous rally that happened um, on Friday of last week in Brunswick. But, uh, you know, for all that, there is still... There is still a lot of frustration um, and a lot of, you know, nobody thinks that that um, these suspects being arrested is uh, is the end of this case by by any means. I mean, as I mentioned, there are calls there are calls for um, at least investigation, many people calling for the arrest of uh, of the person who recorded the video and and also broader calls for, for change in, in Glynn County, because that's that's another big sense I've gotten from a lot of people is that, you know, for, for people who live in Glynn County, this is not they don't see this as the first time that, that something like this has happened. They don't see this as the first time that that a case 
has been they feel mishandled or or you know justice has not been done. Um, so so that was that was another uh, another theme I've I've heard from a lot of people is this is is more of a more of a a boiling point a breaking point than um, than you know one sudden isolated incident. Um. So, Greg, it, it, we talked about the man who recorded the video a couple of times. Uh, his name is, uh, and, and uh, uh, Chris mentioned it, William Roddy Bryan. Uh, he shot the video, Greg, through the front windshield of his car and mm-hmm. followed him as Arbery jogged down the street. And, um, and then he encounters some, uh, well, he, he, he shoots the video of... Gregory and Travis McMichael confronting uh, uh, Arbery, and then we see the whole shooting unfold. It, but it is still, as Emily points out, it's understandable why the community down there is not quite clear on what Roddy Bryan's role in all of this is. He claims that he was just, uh, he sh- he's being persecuted, essentially, he said. But he clearly played some role in how this developed, Greg. I mean, he was he was involved in at least the, the, the you know following the encounter and taping it, obviously, um, and that sort of looks like the next area of this investigation, at least one of the areas of, of a very broad investigation. GBI's director Vic Reynolds said said there could be more arrests and investigations ongoing, and uh, of course, Attorney General Chris Carr also hinted that that over the weekend, saying that this investigation could take us in, in many different places. Um, and so a lot of the speculation is centered on what will happen to Mr. Bryan. And we heard, we just heard from Chris saying that he should be charged um, as an accessory, in, in Chris's words, as an accessory to the crime. Amy, you're obviously a political science professor. And often when we have you on the show, it's to give us your political analysis. But you also have a great background in understanding constitutional law, understanding uh, the courts. Just give us your overall take on how you've watched this unfold. Um, I think that there's a couple of different levels to this. I mean, so one is sort of an interpretation of these statutes that sort of sound like they could be good in very particular situations and then are more problematic further on. So this is talking about this citizen's arrest law. So as we sort of talked about, when you think about the shop owner tackling someone, there you go. But now the question becomes, what does it mean to have knowledge of the crime? Does it mean that your neighbor down the street calls you and says, hey, I think a burglary is taking place and some dude did it? Does it mean that you actually witnessed it and so can act on it? So that's sort of number one. Um, number two is this issue of prosecutorial discretion, which is a huge deal, um, that prosecutors have a lot of power, right? Not only do police have a lot of power to arrest people, prosecutors have a lot of say within that of whether or not they want to charge and to particularly give possibly uh, police guidance on whether they should arrest someone. And I think that's really coming to play here. Um, And unfortunately is also tapping into sort of other issues such as the fact that one of the, the Elder McMichael worked for uh, both the police force and the DA's office. And so now you've got that they know him, um, these sort of issues that are going on there and what that means. Um, And then I think the final thing is this issue of sort of in general, like what type of force is okay, right? What does it mean? Even if we say, like, let's say, and I'm not actually sure that I believe this is true, but let's say that, sure, he committed 
right? Minor trespass and maybe even, you know, took a box of nails from the construction site. Does that then mean that even the police, much less a private citizen, is able to stop him by shooting him, right? Where does that fit in and what does that mean in the broader context of what type of force is allowable? Well, I think, and maybe Greg or Emily uh, also know about this, and one of you, if you, if you do, please uh, step in after I've made my comments about this. It, it is, as I looked at what the Georgia law allows in terms of citizen arrest, again, uh, if it's a misdemeanor, uh, you, are not, you do not have the force of law behind you to, uh, to, to harm, to physically harm, to detain, and in this case, shoot the person you think is... Um, uh, uh, responsible for violating the law. If it's a felony and the person is trying to escape, I think Georgia statute does allow you to retain them. You probably tackle that person. I, do, I think, I think, and Greg, I don't know if you've looked into it, but my, that's my understanding about how this law works. Although, Greg, what we're seeing now are legislators calling for the law to be abandoned altogether. Greg? Yeah, and that's what's important to notice about this is hate crimes is just one facet of what lawmakers, activists, community leaders, and, 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 and others are pushing for. And I don't know how much will be done this legislative session because there's only uh, 11 or so more days left. Um, but they, wanna, they want uh, comprehensive rewrites of part of criminal justice law that, that looks at citizens' arrest, stand your ground laws. Um, and also Democrats have been pushing basically a, a database um, of, of police use of force. Um, if only to, to, to require law enforcement agencies to publish uh, when they use um, use of force or excessive use of force. And so that's all part and parcel of, of the legislative package. And I think Emily knows a little bit more about um, the specifics of the law. Yeah, and I'll, I'll start, of course, by saying I'm not a lawyer. I'm a reporter. So, <laughs> uh, you know. My, my legal opinions certainly are not uh, those of an expert. But I did want to say that, um, you know, looking at, at this, this letter that uh, the second district attorney, D.A. Barnhill, sent, which is now a part of the whole probe into possible misconduct because he sent this letter, you know, advising the police not to make any arrests and things. But he did give this lengthy legal opinion on the case. And the, the citizen's arrest law was not the only law that he brought up as possibly act, applicable. He also brought up Georgia's version of a stand-your-ground law. Um, and so I think that is, that is, is the, the area where, where, you know, potentially, like, at some point there are limits to the citizen's arrest law and, and you get into, into stand-your-ground because— um, Part of that, of course, was based on on an interpretation of that video that that sees that interprets Arbery as having, uh, you know, attacked them, attacked the McMichaels. And um, I think uh, not everyone has has interpreted the video in the same way that District Attorney Barnhill has did. I'll say, um, but but yeah, I do think I do think that you know, citizens' arrest is is not the only law in play here. Um, Emily, uh, the letter you referred to, the George Barnhill letter, is has caused a storm of controversy because he wrote it, uh, and as you point out, it's a page long. We read excerpts from it on the show the other day. He, he wrote it as an exculpatory statement um, uh, uh, in terms of uh, the McMichaels. 
and said he believed that they had every right to defend themselves because they were being confronted in when they w- tried to stop him. Uh, your right, stand your ground was uh, mentioned, citizens' arrest. But the reason it became so controversial is Barnhill uh, wrote that letter after having already said he was going to recuse himself. So, Emily, the notion that he uh, then says, I'm recusing myself, but here's the conclusion I've come to, has caused him no end of trouble. Yeah, I, the um, the National District Attorneys Association actually put out a statement over the weekend, and I spoke to their president as well. Um, and, you know, they're they're declining to weigh in on a lot of the other elements of of the um, the conduct of Barnhill and the prior D.A., Jackie Johnson. You know, there's a lot of stuff that that uh, Attorney General Carr has pointed to. There's a lot of stuff that that's floating out there. But the one thing that the that the National District Attorneys Association really drilled down on and was like, this is very clearly not OK. This is not what you do is to remove yourself from a case and then issue a lengthy legal opinion. They, they uh, came down pretty clearly saying that, that they do not think that's appropriate um, for a district attorney to do. Yeah, and I think sort of following on that, that's part of what also kind of gets into this is this sort of real concern about, like, what was sort of driving some of the motivations and, you know, the behaviors were sort of at times kind of the opposite of transparent. So the other issue that came up is that supposedly there was a conversation that took place between the prior DA with Barnhill um, and then that was not, in fact, told to the attorney general when the decision was made that she would recuse and appoint Barnhill. Right. We then have Barnhill list uh, putting out the letter after that. And that really the problem is, is that creates sort of um, even more so both kind of a legal and very much so a kind of public view that there's something untoward that is going on, that this is not. Um, sort of a studied, neutral, prosecutorial decision that's being made, but rather that there's more of an attempt. Because it was also, I mean, the Barnhill letter is really interesting sort of from a legal perspective in the sense of how he's interpreting both the stand or ground law of sort of who's the aggressor, because, of course, generally when we think of someone pointing a gun at you, that would be the first person who's the aggressor, but also his interpretation um, of probable cause and what it means to, um, in fact, have immediate knowledge of a crime, right? So for all the, everything that we know is that no one saw Arbery um, in the house uh, or witnessed that or knew, had evidence, but instead right, he interpreted it in that way. And again, it gets into these real questions of what does that mean? What is that stretching? And there's real concern, which I think is not unimportant to this case, that at least one of the parties worked for all of the different players that we've talked about so far or worked or worked with them or in their offices. So they've known him for a long time. And I think that really does uh, somewhat change the decision of how they're interpreting the information that uh, the elder McMichael then gave to the police. I, I want to do one more thing. We're going to have to get to a break and and uh, and do that in just a moment. But, um, <clears throat> Amy, I'm going to ask you this because I think you probably have the best handle on it. Uh, they're going to send this to a grand jury. Mm-hmm. Now, again, you know, like Emily, I'm not a lawyer. Mm-hmm. But grand juries are not requ- required to bring – you do not have to impanel a grand jury to bring criminal charges against someone you suspect – of a felony. I think I'm correct in that. When 
when so the question becomes when you've got a videotape that shows as clearly the evidence that it does of the confrontation and how it unfolded what's your understanding of why you would go to a grand jury and ask citizens to be the ones who look at the evidence and and vote out a true bill rather than doing it on your own or do i misunderstand criminal law um, so I should also say that I'm not a lawyer, but I do teach judicial process. So take that however one would like. And I took way too many law school classes. Right. That's but, why I asked you. Yeah. Um, but so when it comes to this, so there are there are different mechanisms that one can use to be able to bring um, an indictment. And a lot of times there is an argument for using a grand jury, particularly in cases that have been controversial. So it's a way to make it. Um, a bit more neutral and suggest that you are not leaving it up to sort of the personal whims of the prosecutor or the DA's office, but rather that it is charged, right? Because remember, they've been arrested. So, I mean, they, they had probable cause to go before a judge to swear out an, right, a warrant for the arrest. And so this is kind of a necessary check or another check, I should say, on that power of the prosecutor to unilaterally make the decision. And I think particularly in this instance, they're likely wanting to do that because it gives another layer of both transparency and neutrality. All right. So that makes sense. So, Greg, in this case, uh, uh, the grand jury serves probably a very important purpose in uh, trying to untangle this knot of apparent conflicts and contradictory uh, statements being made by law enforcement, we we should not be concerned that the grand jury is going to meet, Greg. And also, I mean, it's such a fraught issue in the community. Um, it, it's it's divided neighborhoods and and divided, uh, you know, longtime friends and down there. So I'm I'm, I'm sure that it's also um, something that gives gives a little bit more distancing for prosecutors to say that okay, well, we asked we asked fellow citizens, and this is what they think. I think that makes sense. Emily, before we, I know we got to let you go, and we do have to get to a break. But before that, just very briefly, if you wouldn't mind, we, we, you, we don't know Satilla Shores and, and the kind of community it is. Uh, I think I'm right that it is a largely white community. It's not a wealthy uh, suburban neighborhood, to the best of my understanding. What is the racial breakdown of the kind? I don't mean exact percentages, but is it largely white? Uh, is it middle-income family? What what can you tell us about Satilla? It is a predominantly white community, isn't it? It it is a predominantly white community. I will say, um, you know, I'm I'm based in Savannah, so I have been reporting on this story, but I, you know, I don't I don't know the neighborhoods of Brunswick as as well as I as I know the ones up here. Um, okay, but. Um, but yeah, it is it is a predominantly white community. My understanding is that is that. Um, you know, Arbery didn't live that far away, though, and that he, um, you know, ran ran in the area uh, pretty frequently. That's that's what I've heard from from folks in Brunswick. And you know, I should also say right, right. that. Um, oh, do I have time? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I should also say just that uh, you know one thing that's really struck me about this case is the way that the the, the public sentiment and the public outcry in Glynn County right now really cuts across most of the dividing lines that we might normally see 
um, on a case like this. I mean, it's it's really cutting across racial division and political division. Um, there is there's definitely you know not everybody is on 100 percent the same page about exactly what happened and exactly what needs to happen next. But but the outcry has definitely not been limited to one group. It's been pretty um, it's been pretty across the board and across divisions in England County from what I've seen. All right. Um, thank you. Um, we are going to take a break right now. Uh, when we come back, Greg Bluestein, you filed a piece uh, in the in the uh, AJC about how politics has uh, come into play in this case. And uh, you and Amy Steigerwald will stay with us while Emily Jones goes off to do her reporting from the Savannah Bureau. And I really appreciate your being with us, Emily. Uh, keep up the great work down there in Savannah. This is Political Rewind. We'll be back in a minute. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. I uh, sort of raced through the introduction uh, to, of everybody to the show today because I uh, wanted to get to uh, Chris Stewart, who had told Tom Faust at the last minute he had to get off the show at, at 9.15, and we want to get at least as much as we could. So let me back up, let's take a deep breath, and say how glad I am to have Amy Steigerwald back with us, a political science professor at Georgia State University, part of the A-team, which until the coronavirus uh, kind of— overshadowed everything else was our our great team of political analysts of the campaigns and we'll be getting back to that sometime pretty soon amy but in the meantime just give us a sense how are you holding up in the pandemic are you sheltering at home what's happening with your classes just give us a little quick update on your personal uh, situation Okay, well, thanks. First, uh, I'm excited to be back. It's, it's uh, been an interesting experience for all of this. Um, we are at home. Um, we are really excited that we have enough rooms that we were able to have a office for my husband, myself, and my son, because at times we're all on our required video chats, and so that's its own thing. But um, we're, we're hanging in there. Um, I will say that we're a little bit dreading summer because spring break was kind of a horrible week. And so we're trying to figure out what's <laughs> going to happen um, once we get the summer. Um, I think in yeah. town, most camps are, are canceled and that's going to continue. So we, we've got to sort of go that one. But it's, um, you know, it's going to be, it's one of those where, I mean, all things considered, we're doing very well. Um, it's hard on everybody. Um, and so it's sort of trying to make that decision of what's, what's safe and what's not. And, um, we really want to be able to see, particularly like my parents and Greg's mom, um, but they're also older and in, you know, sort of higher risk categories. And so then you're sort of debating that. But um, thankfully, the weather's been pretty nice. We can at least get outside. We are playing and watching a lot of soccer. So, you know, we're continuing on that and we'll see what happens. Um, Greg Bluestein, speaking of sort of dreading summer if camps are closed, you're still sheltering in place. I know you're getting out to cover news, but you still got your two daughters at home with your wife off working many, many hours 
over at uh, in her healthcare job. So, uh, <laughs> are you going to be the camp counselor this summer, Greg? Yeah, I think so. Um, we still haven't heard about uh, you know middle June and July for camp, so we're holding out hope that there's some way to send the kids back to camp. And of course, the governor announced just yesterday there's guidelines for camps to open this week, um, starting Thursday. Um, but we're kind of also hitting a settling into a little bit of a groove. The kids are still fighting, and I don't know. One kid stole the other kid's robe this morning, so you might have heard them crying <laughs> right before we went on air. Yeah. But uh, we're 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 getting there. The Kona ice trucks come into our neighborhood today. My kindergartner has a a final Zoom video with her class, so she baked cookies to eat by herself on video. So we're we're getting oh, used no. to this a little bit more. <laughs> All right. Uh, Greg, You let, let's move on and talk about, again, we're going to talk Arbery for a few more minutes. Um, you're, you, you wrote a piece, uh, the headline, it was, uh, Ahmad Arbery slaying becomes part of political debate in Georgia. What does that mean? What do you tell us in that article? Yeah, and one quick thing, I want to just go back to what we said before the break. Um, I got a text sure. from Senator Jen Jordan, who says that a uh, and she's a she's a lawyer, of course. She says grand jury is actually required under Georgia law for capital murder um, crimes, like uh, for capital crimes like murder. So the in this case the oh the grand I'm glad okay yeah um, Senator but, so, Jordan, yeah, thank you so for explaining that. It also gives us an indication that they want so because capital not all murder charges would be capital crimes, so it also does give you some indication of what type of a penalty they're likely going to try to ask for. Um, right, and that also, or they at least want to keep the door that open means it would for be that. supported by yeah. the grand jury if they reach that. Yeah, usually she says that okay. grand juries That's require when it comes to the seven deadly sins. Um, but in terms of entering the political right. sphere, you've seen you know candidates hold emergency town hall meetings and forums to talk about how they will respond to to, to this legislatively. There was a big press conference that Emily covered yesterday down in Brunswick from members of the of the, the legislative black caucus uh, lawmakers from South Carolina and Florida showed up to show unity with Georgia lawmakers. Um, you, you've seen, a, you know, Republican concerns going far beyond dismay. Um, and with the Speaker of the House taking a very outspoken role in pushing a hate crimes law to be passed when lawmakers returned to session in June, on June 11th, um, the House already passed that legislation. It's bound up in the Senate. There's no telling what will happen there. But the speaker is putting his political capital behind pushing that legislation, saying that it should pass with no delay and no amendments, which is a, which is a big deal um, to me. So, and, and the governor has not uh, has not closed the door on it. He's not he's not endorsed it, but he's also said um, that he he is not going to veto it, and he's he, he's he's interested in watching the process move along when it comes to hate crimes. And this is again is a bill that. That was in Georgia law back in 2000 was struck down as unconstitutionally vague in 2004, and since then, um, a coalition of Democrats and a few Republicans have pushed for it uh, for the last 16 years. It looks like this might be this might be a chance for it to pass. And when we what we should make clear about what a hate crimes law would mm-hmm. would do uh, if enacted is it would be a penalty enhancement. In other words, if a if a defendant is found guilty. Uh, if the McMichaels uh, hypothetically are found guilty in this case of uh, of murder, uh, it, it, it would then be part of the sentencing phase, uh, according to the statute that would be put in place, according to Chuck F. Strachan's uh, House bill 
on this, right, Greg? It 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 would then be up to the jury. I think the jury would then weigh in, I believe, on the enhancement portion of it as well, right? Yeah, there's a series of legal standards. Or do we need Jen Jordan back? Yeah, but there's a series of legal standards they must meet in order to prove that it was it was a crime based on race, gender, um, sexual orientation was even put into the. Uh, the House bill last year, that's why it was, it was such a big deal, and that was a, a part of the controversy as well, because previous versions of the law did not include, did not cover sexual orientation. Um, so that was a significant change as well. So, Greg, and then I want you to go right and, and add right on to this, Amy, if you will. Greg, uh, your, your colleague, uh, uh, Jim Galloway, pointed out in a column at the beginning of, of or at the end of last week, that what he saw, thought was different about the Arbery case was that Republicans and Democrats were uh, equal in their condemnation of this as a heinous crime. No one shied away from talking about it as a racially motivated crime. You've got the speaker, as you pointed out, uh, forcefully saying, I want that hate crimes bill passed. No amendments, as you say, that is a big deal to insist on that. So Galloway sees this, and he and he believes that to some extent Chris Carr set the tone for uh, this, uh, the Republican Attorney General. Mm-hmm. But but Greg, are are there um, fissures between Republicans and Democrats as how they're viewing this thing, or has there been a certain unanimity? There's certainly fissures over how they view hate crimes law and, and, and some other changes the Democrats are pushing yeah. to the criminal justice system. But what struck me, as well as I'm sure Galloway, is that when you heard President Trump speak about this over the weekend, and, and he, he said something to the effect of, you know, he looks like a good guy, this is a tragedy, but he also said this this might be more complicated than it seems. And that's, that's, that is not a line we've heard many Republicans in Georgia say. That's not a line that Governor Kemp has, has, has echoed. That's not something that Chris Carr or congressional candidates, or um, Buddy Carter, the, the local congressman, uh, Republican congressman from the Savannah area, they are all saying this is a horrific tragedy. It's, 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 the, the video is horrifying, and they're calling for thorough investigations, and they're calling for action to be taking, uh, looking into the process of why prosecutors didn't initially charge the McMichaels. So they're not, they're not borrowing the sort of, they're not borrowing on, on Trump's line. And I think the other part that's interesting is there is sort of a broader question of how that's playing in sort of as we look to um, sort of both issues that the Republican Party has had in appealing both to people of color as well as women. They're really sort of hemorrhaging in that sense and have been um, in some instances, at least, uh, it's been suggested that the party is not really taking very seriously these kind of systemic issues that really confront us, right? The idea that um, someone who is wandering around a construction site, um, of whether or not they're doing it for a nefarious purpose or because they're curious about what is happening. Um, I have wandered around numerous construction sites to go check out houses in our neighborhood that are being built. Um, I've never been questioned about why I'm there. I'm also a mm-hmm. white woman, right? How much does that play into it and sort of recognizing, I think this is a particular case, um, maybe because in, in part the video is what people sort of first saw and where the attention that came out like sort of first and that was what blew up. But I think it sort of put into stark relief this idea of 
why is it that a citizen is going after a guy jogging, taping him from a car, and then pulling out a gun in front of him? And what, what is going on here? Where does that put? How do we justify this as kind of normal um, behavior? And I think it's coming at a time where people recognize also that a lot that we're taking much more seriously some of the systemic issues that are existing, particularly within um, the criminal justice system. All right, let me do this. Let me get to our final break of the show. When we come back, we've got more politics that we want to look at. Greg Bluestein, I just saw you uh, posted a piece about a new internal poll in Georgia that uh, has some relatively troubling news for Republicans. We'll get to that after we pause for this break. We're back on Political Rewind, a quick program. Now, we're going to talk about how uh, the coronavirus is affecting education in Georgia, schools in Georgia. Will they open again in the fall? If not, how will students learn? Uh, How can distance learning work in a state that uh, has such inequitable distribution of computers and resources that uh, underserve families' need for schools? We're going to do that on the show tomorrow, and I'm really looking forward to that conversation. Um, Before we talk, Greg, about the poll that you posted this morning, I want to go back briefly. Uh, Yesterday on the show, I mentioned that the Washington Post and Ipsos had put up a poll of governors around the country, their approval ratings, and that poll showed that uh, Governor Kemp uh, was way down at the bottom of the heap. Uh, these are, this was based on how people felt about their dealing with the virus. Mike DeWine was at the top. He had 83% approval. I think Governor Kemp was down in the mid-30s. But I do think it's important. I got a note after the show saying, it, it one, one caution Uh, It turns out there were like 219 people uh, surveyed in the Georgia uh, part of the poll. That's not a particularly significant uh, uh, population to draw a conclusion. But, but Greg, it does give us some at least anecdotal sense that uh, the governor's decision to start opening things up again has been widely controversial. Yeah. Yeah, and we've seen similar from a UGA poll that showed it was that was back in April, but it showed um, you know uh, similar concerns about whether the governor was moving too fast, and it showed broad support for at the time for uh, economic restrictions that Georgia had placed uh, on, on businesses. Okay, and and now though you you know you were at I think you were at the news conference yesterday. He sort of sent mixed messages yesterday. Yeah, uh, he did say that uh, he uh, was not going to allow nightclubs or entertainment venues, bars to reopen. But then he went on and said restaurants uh, can now seat, can increase from, what, four to six to ten people at a table? And I thought, yeah, and then child care facilities could double the number of kids in a class I don't know, 10 to 20, I believe that is. Mm-hmm. Those are kind of mm-hmm. mixed messages, Greg. And at the same time, not only did we already mentioned the camps reopening um, or could reopen if they follow yeah. the restrictions, but um, but also state government will start, st- limited state government agencies yeah. will start going back to work. And we're not sure which ones they are yet. We're not sure how it will happen, but that'll be a, a big test to, to Georgia's uh, economy, traffic. We'll, we'll see what, what types of changes we see in the general the atmosphere, but that will start um, as early as, as Monday. 
Amy, how, what, how, how much do you think all of this is actually going to play into the elections in, especially in November when we're going to have uh, races uh, between Republicans and Democrats? I think some of it is going to be dependent upon what the world also looks like come October, November. And so I think, number one, we've sort of realized, particularly in the past couple of years, that the political situation seems to change on a dime. And what the issue of the day is changes very quickly. Um, this may be the longest news cycle that we've had in a while uh, with kind of a consistent pop story. Um, but I think it's an important one, right? The reality is that even if things open back up fully, we are not going to see um, sort of a swift economic recovery, right? Businesses, many of them are not necessarily going to rehire immediately. Um, I think it's also important to note that a lot of uh, the epidemiological tracking has shown that um, even when places have reopened, people aren't going. So I think there's also this question of sort of what people themselves are choosing and where that's going to do and how much that's going to matter. And I think it is going to play into this. I mean, to be perfectly blunt, those governors that are doing best in these polls are those that are being much more cautious and urging people to pay attention to the public health issues, wanting to support people uh, in the fact that they're staying home. And I think we're going to continue to see that going on. Um, and I think what really might be the issue is, is what happens two, three, four weeks from now, right? Do we start to see outbreaks again because things have opened up? And then I think that's going to, again, sort of potentially reinforce for people um, the both public health and economic concerns with this. So, uh, Greg, I didn't ask uh, the question of Amy with much precision, so let me be more specific, uh, although she gave a great answer. Uh, it's, it's, we, the question becomes, Governor Kemp, of course, isn't on the ballot until 2022. But the question is, will the party in power, whether it's uh, Donald Trump in the White House, whether it's legislators in, state around, uh, in Republican states uh, particularly, uh, are, it's going to be punished if the coronavirus is still very much with us. And here's where it comes to the internal poll that you uh, got a copy of. Uh, group backing Governor Kemp. What does it show us first about the presidential race in Georgia? Well, it shows a very, very tight contest in the presidential race and, and the races for both U.S. Senate seats are put out. Joe Biden was at 47 percent. Donald Trump was at 46 percent, of course, within the margin of error of four percentage points. So that's that's a tie. It's, it's a deadlock. And then for the Senate races, David Perdue, uh, the Republican incumbent, led Democratic frontrunner John Ossoff 43-41. Um, with about 8% undecided, 7% went to Libertarian Shane Hazel. Ossoff's top rivals weren't tested. And then in the other Senate race, Kelly Leffler, Doug Collins, Matt Lieberman, um, two Republicans and Democrat, were all you know, kind of dead even, 19, 18, 17 percentage of points of the vote. And then um, Raphael Warnock was at 9%. About one quarter of voters were, were undecided. So really it shows – and this is a Republican poll, to be, to be clear, right? And it's the second Republican internal poll yeah. we've seen in, in a matter of weeks that shows Republicans are under a lot of duress going into November. Okay, so I, we don't have time to drill deeply into this, but I'll tell you what jumps out at me, uh, for instance. When you've got a Doug Collins and a Kelly Leffler – 
Collins, obviously a very well-known Georgian, Leffler becoming known. They're virtually tied. And then the Democrat who's up there with them is a guy who nobody has known in the state, Matt Lieberman at 17%. You got Collins 19, Leffler 18, Lieberman 17, and Raphael Warnock, who most Democrats think is the savior of the party. Uh, and now these, this is a very early poll, and we don't quite know the methodology. But weren't you a little surprised by that? And I was. Um, but but you, we've seen a few polls showing Lieberman ahead of Warnock, um, partly because of his, his name ID, because he has a famous last name. Yeah. His his father was mm-hmm. the was the Democratic nominee for vice president and a long-serving senator up in Connecticut, uh, and partly because um, Walter Warnock hasn't had many events. He hasn't had many campaign um, messaging. He hasn't. And he's basically been raising money, and he's uh, and he outraised both of his his Republican rivals in the first quarter. But he also hasn't been out there doing that much, and he doesn't necessarily need to yet because there's no primary in this race. It's a November special election, so I think all camps feel like they have a little bit more time. That's why you're not you're not seeing Kelly Leffler's uh, camp kind of hit the emergency button right now, even though um, they're not doing tremendously well in any of the polls, even even this internal poll from an ally. A um, slim majority of voters, according to the poll, 51 percent approve of the governor's decision to allow some businesses to reopen, while 47 percent disagree. A higher number, 58 percent, back his move to lift the shelter-in-place order, uh, 41 percent uh, disapprove. So among it's not, it's not surprising that um, a Republican poll would—I uh, mean, we don't even know, Greg, do we, what the uh, crosstabs are in terms of Democrats and Republicans being asked to respond to this. No, we don't. But but it it is a well. Both these polls that we've published and the internal poll from from the House Republican Caucus a few weeks ago are from respected pollsters too. So you know sometimes we get these internal polls from groups we've never heard of. Um, this is um, I, I've heard from 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 even some of the uh, some of uh, Doug Collins's uh, it's Kelly Leffler's critics I should say or, or Governor Kemp's critics saying like, you know that they have to at least respect the poll because. It came from uh, public opinion strategies, which is a well-known pollster. But no, we don't have the cross tabs. There's a lot. Yeah. There's a lot lacking. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah. All right. Uh, fascinating results. Amy Steigerwald, you've got about thirty seconds to make an observation about what you hear. You're hearing about this poll. This is an internal poll on the Republican side, which you would expect to be potentially more bullish, and it suggests that. Georgia really is becoming a very purple state, and it's up for grabs at both the presidential level and I'm on some level most surprised, actually, by the Purdue race. Okay. Amy Steigerwald, last word in today's Political Rewind. Uh, Thank you very much for being with us. Greg Bluestein, it's a pleasure as always to have, sure, to have you here as well. Greg, get out there and teach your children math or whatever you're teaching (laughs) I will. New math. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thanks a lot for everybody out there who is listening to the show today. Thanks, Tom Faust. Thanks, Sam Burmistaz. Thanks, Jesse Nicewanger, for holding down the fort at GPB while I get to sit here in the spare office in my house. We'll be back with another show tomorrow looking at education and how Georgia schools are affected by the coronavirus. Until then, please take care and stay healthy.